Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. Trust me, Buck. You don't want what I've got. Stuart. His flesh is weak now. And Arnie. Is that all the men you brought? Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review. Who will you stand with, the humans or us? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men Days of Future Past, starring Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Sean Ashmore, Um, Ellen Page, Hugh Jackman. No, not quite. Have you jumped into the future, Arnie? What? There's a movie that came in between that and the last X-Men film we saw. No, no, I want to talk Days of Future Past, goddammit! <laughs> and so does everyone else. But this summer we get the Wolverine. Alright, today we'll have to discuss the Wolverine, because Days of Future Past ain't out yet. 20th Century Fox has only been talking about Days of Future Past. But yes, lest you forget the Wolverine, starring Hugh Jackman, Tao Okamoto, Hiroyuki Sanada. Famke Jensen, William Lee, and directed by James Mangold. Come on, you're not going to try Svetlana Kozhenkova? <laughs> that was the one I wanted to hear so badly. I'm Arnie Bubb, the co-host of Now Play. Steward in LA. Chemist, nihilist, capitalist, podcaster. This is Jacob. I don't think your tongue works as good as hers. I don't think I'd have to be podcasting. I would have my hands full of something else if my tongue worked like that. Science? Yeah, we'll say science. A certain kind. (laughs) Well, this is it. We are continuing our X-Men retrospective series. It's funny. I went back and listened to our old shows where we finished with X-Men First Class that weekend of release. And we were discussing during First Class how they kept talking about making this Wolverine sequel. And around the time First Class came out, Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky, who had been tab to direct and christopher mcquarrie was the writer they all kind of backed away from the project and this was in limbo and it would take two more years before we were able to get a wolverine sequel that i know Stuart, you probably weren't highly anxious for <laughs> you know it hasn't been a really exciting summer 2013 for me i gotta say a lot of this yeah here was another series i really just didn't want to go back to the theater for the wolverine spinoff i mean i guess the thing that i took away from this was by calling it the wolverine they're promising to give us the movie they should have the last time with that cruddy x-men origin film that i will speak no more of but yeah One of my least favorite Marvel adaptations was Logan's first solo adventure. I left that with the taste that this character could not sustain a film without his X-Men buddies. This will be the litmus test, I guess. I didn't want it, but I'm here to review it. Yeah, I was nervous coming up 
to this one because that X-Men Origins Wolverine Beginnings, whatever that was called, that is the low point. Not counting that TV stuff we did. That was the low point in this X-Men retrospective for me. And I don't know what you guys thought, but this just didn't seem to get a lot of fanfare. It's like they just kind of threw it out there. You know, I saw a few trailers on TV and before other movies that I watched for now playing in the theaters, but it didn't seem to have the hype that an X-Men film has. Like you said, Arnie, I think I've heard more about Days of Future Past than this film that came out this summer. Yeah, it's really funny how that happened. I mean, Fox is always putting the cart before the horse. When we were discussing X-Men First Class, Fox was already talking about getting the old cast together for another X-Men movie, getting Patrick Stewart back, and which they did, and they weren't even talking about this, and now before this, they're talking Days of Future Past. And I'll admit, in this very crowded summer, with Iron Man and Pacific Rim and... Superman. Yeah, so many other movies. The Wolverine was one that was on my radar. I wanted to see it. I'm a fan of the character. I'm a fan of Hugh Jackman. But it was one that I couldn't even keep mentally straight. When's this coming out again? And... I was overseas and didn't even see it opening weekend. I saw it on Monday and again on a Tuesday, well a week after it was released. It does seem to be kind of an orphan child, both for Fox and for this summer. Well, let's face it, they'd be a lot more excited about it if it was the only X-Men property. But yeah, they got something that's a much bigger deal in 365 days. So I feel like immediately invalidates this one to know that everybody's coming back for the next movie. Who cares what Wolverine does this time? It's not going to impact anything we see in the future. This is a standalone adventure. And I think that that just makes it less exciting. Stuart, I'm going to slightly disagree. Being the comic book guy and having read Wolverine comics growing up, you know, one of the things, and I think I said this in the other podcast, one of the things I wanted to see was Wolverine in Japan. That's always one of my favorite interpretations, him as a Ronin. And so that is the one thing I was excited about, that it was promising us Wolverine in Japan. I get what you're saying to the Fairweather fan or someone that might not just be into the franchise or into comic books. Let's get to the big one with all the big stars again. But that was the one thing that was keeping my interest is we're going to see Wolverine going to Japan this time. And for me, I actually was really intrigued by this because it seems like such a counter to what has been going on with the superhero movies. I mean, we look at Man of Steel, we look at the Avengers. They're all these global, high stakes, huge destruction porn films and the one thing that really struck me with this is they're doing something different. This, I could tell from the ads, was going to be a smaller picture, character-driven picture. And I think that's a really interesting experiment to try with a superhero film. How much bigger can you go? I mean, we're about at the point where every movie is going to need the entire planet to explode to keep upping the stakes. So to try to take this character and Hugh Jackman, who we've all complimented his acting in at least some of his X-Men movies in the past, it was a direction that I found exciting if done right. And I was so excited for this that I actually went and looked up the director James Mangold. Now, as I mentioned, he wasn't the first choice. I think we'd all be probably a little more excited if this was directed by Darren Aronofsky. It was supposed to be, but the public reason he isn't doing it is because he was afraid it would take him away from his family too long. <laughs> 
That is clearly a lie. Oh, yes. I don't want to do a movie. It might take me away from my family. What, they can't go to Japan? Uh, Actually, this was all filmed in Australia. When Hugh Jackman's the producer, he gets to choose where he shoots. They shoot near his house. Oh, wow. Really? This was not done in Japan? No, I noticed that in the credits. It's, yeah, all Australia. I was shocked. I don't know. Maybe Australia looks like my preconceived notion of Japan. There were a couple of days at the very beginning in Japan. But yeah, this is the outback. That's awesome. Then I definitely feel like the set decorator deserves high, high praise right off the top. Whatever else I'm going to say about the Wolverine, they are a megastar for what they were able to pull off and fooling me. What I'd heard the behind the scenes rumor, though, is Aronofsky was dead set on making a hard R Wolverine film. And when Fox was like, no, we need to bring in the kids, we need to bring in the dollars, Aronofsky walked over content. That's funny, because I feel like they do push it. I mean, they did it even with his little cameo in First Class. Wolverine's in there for three seconds, and he drops the F-bomb. Here, he's going to drop the F-bomb again. I feel like they are trying to give a harder edge one, but yeah, they are straddling that line. Here's the tough, grizzled Wolverine, but still PG-13. You know, that wasn't really my issue. My issue was he was a dull character, that he was prone to raging and didn't have much emotional variance. He was in a lot of crappy action scenes. Just about everything was bad about Origin. So I didn't need the next one to be R. That would be like saying, let's fix Aliens vs. Predator by making it R. I mean, they tried that too. It didn't save it. I think that going harder is not necessarily a recipe for making a better film. No, but it was the film Aronofsky wanted to make based off of Christopher McQuarrie's original script. And, I mean, this is rumor, it may not be true, but that seems to be what he left over was how much is going to be appealing to kids versus how much is going to be his vision. I know we've all seen several Aronofsky films. He's big on obsession. You can see some of the themes here. He probably would have taken it in a different direction. End to end. End to end. <laughs> yeah, I can't make my R-rated Wolverine movie, so I'm going to go make a Bible film. Work for Mel Gibson with the passion. Yeah, true. Well, we'll find out next year whether he made the right choice when he unveils his Noah. But for now, I guess we've got to discuss what James Mangold did. Yeah, Mangold. This was a director... I wasn't overly familiar with, but I knew he got the job through a little bit of nepotism because he's a friend of Jackman's because they worked together before. Sure. I wish I were a friend of Jackman. I'd be working <laughs> a lot more. Yeah, on this utter piece of shit film called Kate and Leopold. Oh my God, I watched this. I was actually, despite being under my radar, I was excited enough by a character-driven Wolverine film that I dug up that thing. You can read my full review at the Venganza Media Gazette. There's a link from the Now Playing Podcast homepage. But that was terrible. That was absolutely terrible. And that made me kind of worried about this movie. Every director has bombs. I think a good working relationship fostering a good vibe on set is the way to go. I don't know if it was unpleasant on Origins or not. That was an Aussie working on that movie. It certainly didn't seem to help. I really liked one James Mangold movie, 310 to Yuma, the remake with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. I thought it was excellent and highly underrated. I feel like nobody saw it because it was a Western, but it was terrific. And so I know the guy's got skill. It's not who I would have requested, but it's not Yui Bowl either. I've seen almost every film of his, but the one I haven't seen, the only one I haven't seen, is 310 to Yuma because it's a Western. <laughs> but I'd seen Identity, Girl Interrupted, Copland. I remember Copland having a lot of buzz when it came out in 97. We saw that in theaters together, Stuart. Yes. But 
I honestly think this guy is so bland that I didn't recognize his name despite seeing almost every film he's done. Every time I see one of his films, he doesn't make a presence to me. And the closest thing I could actually equate to the Wolverine would be Night and Day, that Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz spy romantic comedy that was really, really bad also. Yeah, I didn't hear anything good about that one. But, you know, he has a long history of making movies at Fox. He has a history of getting people Oscars. He's friends with Jackman, and this is a troubled production, and they just want to get it done. I can see how he gets the job. Like I said, it makes sense from a strategic standpoint. we got to get this done. I mean, was Wolverine in jeopardy of going over to Disney? Were they under a time crunch to deliver a Wolverine movie? Could they have completely tabled this project and had no repercussions with losing the rights to the character? Because this is one owned by Fox and not Marvel Studios proper. Yeah, I think that's also part of the reason we're not seeing a whole lot of marketing is because Marvel isn't bringing their guns. Marvel's kind of pissed about this. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they would love one of their top, like, five characters back. Yeah, and there's right now a wonderful pissing match as both Days of Future Past and Avengers 2 will have the same character played by two different actors in two different universes. Oh, really? Yeah, Quicksilver. Oh, (laughs) Because Quicksilver was an X-Man who became an Avenger, and so their licensing rights say, well, you can use him in X-Men, but you can never mention Avengers, and you can use him in Avengers, but you can never mention he's Magneto's son. Gets really confusing. But they have, I think, five years between movies. It wasn't contractual to keep the characters. I think Fox needed a tentpole film for this summer, and Jackman was under contract. I think it was just a matter of profitability and capitalizing on the franchise they have, not a matter of we need to get this out a la Amazing Spider-Man. Right. But yes, Jackman back for the sixth time with Days of Future Past. Jackman is going to beat the record holder for the playing the same superhero in the most number of movies. That record is currently held by Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Of course he is. I wonder if we are going to get a Nick Fury spinoff movie. They might just make it just out of spite. We'll see. (laughs) By Avengers 3, uh, Robert Downey Jr. will hold the record. But we'll talk about all that in years from now. Yeah, for now. Yeah, let's get into the movie. I mean, yeah, this is a revered storyline. Wolverine goes to Japan. I've never read it. Tell me what it is. After the events of X-Men 3, Logan is moved to Alaska, where he lives in isolation, haunted by dreams of Jean Grey, the mutant he loved but was forced to kill. The Wolverine's respite is interrupted by Yukio, a Japanese mutant sent to find the recluse by her employer, Yoshida, the dying founder of the largest electronics company in Japan. In World War II, Logan saved Yoshida's life, shielding him from the nuclear bombing at Nagasaki, so Yoshida had summoned Logan ostensibly to thank him. But in reality, Yoshida wants immortality. He's teamed up with a biochemist, Dr. Green, a mutant who goes by the name Viper, who has the ability to transfer Logan's immortality to the old man. This would make Logan mortal, able to live out a normal life without the torment of watching all his loved ones die while he remains young, and let Yoshida live forever. 
But despite his torment, Logan refuses, so Yoshida goes to Plan B, a convoluted plot where he fakes his own death and pisses off his son Shingen by leaving the company to his granddaughter. You know what? Screw it. We're going to get into it. It's confusing as hell, but suffice it to say, Viper plants a robotic creature in Logan's heart, which suppresses his healing ability. So as Logan fights to protect Mariko, he can be wounded and perhaps even killed. They're on the run from Yakuza and ninjas. On After all that, Logan starts to fall for the heiress, but she is captured, leading to a showdown at one of Yoshida's business towers. To prepare for the fight, Logan cuts himself open and rips the creature from his heart, restoring his healing powers, and goes and faces off against Yoshida, who's being kept alive in a robotic silver suit made of adamantium, the same metal that coats Logan's bones. In the fight, Logan's metal claws are severed, but his bone claws regrow and he kills the old man while Yikio fights and kills Viper. And with that done, Mariko invites Logan to stay on as her lover in Tokyo, but Logan has embraced his role as a soldier and goes off with Yukio to an unknown future as credits roll. Credits which are interrupted by a scene that takes place two years after the events in Tokyo, but we're going to get into that too. So yeah, this is the Japanese story, and despite having read some comics, I haven't read this either. I know this is the movie Jackman had wanted to make since the first X-Men film. He read this as preparation for his first time out as Wolverine, and had been championing this forever. Jacob, tell me about the comics. How close to this is the comic? Yeah, so I believe it was 8283 Chris Claremont, who really revived the X-Men, if you remember X-Men didn't do so hot when they first premiered as a comic, and then they tried it again, and it caught on. So Chris Claremont, Frank Miller, a huge name at this time, uh, you know, didn't really have the style that we've come to know him for as far as his art goes. But yeah, Wolverine goes to Japan, and it really is a character-driven piece. It's about Wolverine learning to become the samurai, the master over his beast side. Uh, you know, he's tr- trying to control the rage, the berserker, as it's called. But you know what? This is... Definitely an adaptation. You can see they took a lot of the characters. Yukio is in that miniseries. Not a mutant, just a ninja. You have Miriko, who is the love interest of Wolverine. They actually get engaged. Viper, Silver Samurai, they're not in that original miniseries. They come back later when Wolverine returns to marry Mariko. But you got a lot of the same characters. You know, if you've read that, you'll definitely see how that inspired this film. But it's not a real tight adaptation. But it's definitely inspired by that original Wolverine miniseries. Yeah, what's surprising to me is that it's really a direct sequel to Last Stand. Whatever its ties are to the original source material, they're also not having you forget what happened with Wolverine and Gene. And I mean, I thought this guy was hanging out at the school with Halle Berry by the end of it. And now when we see him, it's one year later, he's on a different path entirely. I thought it was really surprising that they would tie so directly with a sequel that, shall we say, is polarizing and not more closely with a beloved comic book storyline that probably would do a lot to soothe wounds with the fans that were angry about so many mutant kills. You have Mangold to thank for this, because when this script was written and when Aronofsky and 20th Century Fox were working on it and even Jackman, they were all conceiving this as a sequel to Wolverine, X-Men Origins. And you want to talk about polarizing. (laughs) I think perhaps everyone had the best idea. Why don't we all take the bullet to the head to forget X-Men Origins Wolverine? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I definitely would. I mean, you can't start on a better foot than that with me here. I mean, I did not enjoy. Again, want to stress. Not just my least favorite X-Men movie, and that includes Generation X. Wolverine X-Men Origins was top five worst Marvel. You can go to our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com to hear my half-hearted defense of that film. (laughs) (laughs) It is cute. I did have to snicker. I re-listened to it. And uh, yeah, you you don't have an enviable task. You try really hard, though. I appreciate it. But... Making this a sequel to The Last Stand does help open some doors for me as far as my interest in this, and that was Mangold's in as well. He didn't want to make a movie that had to lead into X-Men. He didn't want to have a film that was a prequel and we knew where everything was going to go. He wanted to be able to take the character in new places, or at the very least, take off his metal claws. So, that's why this is tied to... X-Men 3, and during pre-production, when I heard Famke Jensen was filming some dream sequence roles as Phoenix, that excited me, especially since I knew how many people were already coming back for Days of Future Past. I wondered how much of a prequel to Days of Future Past this would end up being. The answer is not much at all, but it excited me as a fan during the pre-production. Yeah, and you know what? I applaud this direction. I do think... Let's tell a story again. I mean, Marvel Studios has really gotten into everyone's head that everything must be kind of television, that this is just an episode in an ongoing saga whose storyline will play out for years and years and years. I like the idea that we're going to have, hey, just a movie where a character has a problem to solve, fights a villain, and overcomes an obstacle by the end. I think that's enough. It should be enough if you have quality on your side. I think that that's fine. I had no anticipation that this would in any way be connected to the future or the past of X-Men. In fact, I didn't think much about those films at all. I haven't really seen an X-Men movie since we went to theaters for first class, so I was as fresh as I could be with The Wolverine. It really did shock me to see that this was, well, it was at least building off of The Last Stand, not really a sequel, but it built off those events. But what I liked was that, on one hand, yeah, it was a sequel. On the other hand, though, like you said, Stuart, this is really a self-contained story. You get pretty much all you need to know, that there is this ex-lover and Wolverine had to kill her because she was hurting people. They drop those lines. That's really all the backstory you need to know to get what Wolverine is going through. And I was kind of excited when I saw this revelation towards the beginning that it was the death of Jean Grey that's haunting Wolverine that's made him become a a vagabond, living out in the mountains by himself. And Arnie, you said a character-driven story. Yeah, we'll debate how well this is a character-driven story, but I was excited to see that, especially with, you know, the biggest character in the X-Men franchise, Wolverine. I felt with that Origins film is like, oh, we got to get Gambit in there and let's get the blob in there and let's get all, you know, Emma Frost in there. Let's get all these different characters in there because that's what comic book people want. But no, here is a relatively quiet, you know, as far as it's not a cluttered film. It's a story about Wolverine with a beginning, middle and end. I'm excited about that. Yeah, but before we start off with the Vagabond, we actually start off like we did with the first Brian Singer X-Men movie in World War Two. This time, instead of a concentration camp, Logan is a prisoner of war at Nagasaki. This is kind of like how whenever we go to the Soviet Union, they always got to end up at Chernobyl, isn't it? I mean, like, (laughs) I I don't know how I feel about the fact that our introduction to the world of Japan must be World War II with the drop of the nuclear bomb. But I guess for many Americans, 
that was. So I think they're thinking about us still as an American audience. What's our entry point here? They're probably very worried that uh, this cast is filled out with Asian actors who American audiences won't know. I guess this is a logical place to come in. And yeah, it's not like they haven't done this before with concentration camps and whatnot. I actually think it does an excellent job of setting the tone. This movie has a very distinctive mood. And this scene tells you right away, yeah, this is not kid stuff. Yeah, I do kind of cringe. You know, whenever you deal with this stuff, or you talked about this with the Holocaust scenes in X-Men, but that was done, I think, pretty tastefully is there is expressing pain as Magneto is going through being a Jew in a concentration camp here. Uh, I just, I feel weird as an American watching this film. Just, it almost seems too casual dropping the atom bomb on Nagasaki here. I think it's a delicate line to play. And we talked about this even with three mile Island in that origins film. Uh, do yeah. you introduce these kind of real disasters as comic book fodder? And it's, it's a delicate line. I don't feel it's exploitive, but it's tricky. They've done it a lot though. I mean, the last movie was all, around the Cuban Missile Crisis. They've established this franchise is about historical events. And I think there's a difference between saying Three Mile Island was a cover-up for Project Deadpool or caused by Project Deadpool and just having characters against a background of historical events. If Victor had ordered the bombing of Nagasaki, we'd have a different situation. Oh, I'm cracking up now, and that's horrible. <laughs> And because we're in World War II and I saw him fighting next to Victor in X-Men Origins, I almost expected a Leo Schreiber cameo here at the beginning. But the thought never even crossed my mind that it would be in bad taste for this to occur because it's people in a bad spot. I don't even see it as making light of things. I thought it was actually a pretty sympathetic viewpoint because what you have is the Japanese know that they're about to be bombed and one of the soldiers there, Yoshida, is actually freeing all the prisoners because he wants to give everyone a chance to escape, including himself. This is a character whose defining quality is going to be he clings to life at all costs and not just his own. He tries to free the prisoners and when his superiors are committing harikari, he, he can't do it. I think that it's a really drastic opening. I think maybe he would have died many, many years before the primary events in this movie from radiation, from being so close to the nuclear bomb. But I thought it was effective. Yeah, I think it sets the right tone, or at least sets the tone for the rest of this movie. It is not in stark contrast. It's not like we jump and it's happier times with jokes and comedy. I'm going to say this is probably the most hard PG-13 X-Men movie we've had as far as wanting an R-rated Wolverine story, I think it's just a few shades lighter than that. I really do think that this is a somber adult story. I would caution anybody to bring children that have maybe liked some of the other movies. I think that 13 and above is definitely recommended here. And I think that it's a nice approach. It's a nice way of making this one feel unique. After six movies and six Jackman performances, I'm hooked right from the get-go. And there's rumors that the video release will have an R-rated gut. I 
can't imagine what would be very different. It does feel at times like an R-rated film. Perhaps they'll CGI blood in like with that Die Hard R-rated cut. That's the only thing I could think of is there's a lot of slicing and dicing that's very bloodless and adding some blood and maybe a couple more f-bombs would be all you could do yeah to me that's a pretty subtle difference i don't think that this movie is screaming for it i think that they pull punches in the writing i think sometimes logan doesn't kill when he they've primed him to such but by and large they've written it into the character but here in the beginning Instead of killing his captor, the very first thing we see Logan do is save a life. Yoshida was finally about to commit Harikari as he sees the wave of fire coming towards him. And Logan stays his hand, takes him down, and shields him from the fireball. Yeah, let's talk about this. Because this is a scene that they cut back to again and again and again. This is a relationship that defines this movie. And I'm not sure I totally understand. What we're to take away from watching this interaction is that, yes, Yoshida is, unlike his fellow soldiers, not willing to fall on his sword, is shamed, really, that he lives, because afterwards he wants to give Logan his sword that he's been protected by this man who's invincible, wants to repay the debt by giving him the saber that he didn't fall on. This sword will be uh, back and forth for the rest of this movie. It's actually how he's able to find Logan later because he doesn't take it. Yeah, I don't see quite why he needs to give the sword. I kind of tried to understand why Logan would save this guy's life beyond just the fact that he's the hero and his name's in the title. And the only thing I could think of is repaying him because this guy tried to save his life by cutting the chains and setting him free. Oh, yeah. So since Wolverine was repaying that debt by shielding him, now he's trying to give a sword. It. I don't understand why Wolverine would want a sword. He doesn't want a sword. He says no. <laughs> Look, the dude just saved him from an atom bomb. You know, I, I give people gifts for lesser things that they do for me. Uh, all he had was a sword. I, I don't know. Maybe he had some war medals he could have got. I don't know. I didn't look too deep into that. It was like, thanks for saving me. Here's a really cool weapon. Hasn't anyone ever, like, baked you uh, uh, cookies or something that were not good, and you smiled and thanked them and, like, put them in the trash? Like, could he just take the sword from the man and, and make him feel better? I mean, my God, I, I, I think it's weird that Logan doesn't take it. He's got swords in his hands! <laughs> not at that point, he has bones. They're still sharp. Good point, yes. I guess, but that's takeaway here, is that he doesn't need a weapon because he is a weapon. So his journey throughout the course of this movie is to be humbled by that. And by the end of this adventure, he would not be able to win had he not taken the sword up, which is kind of filled with all sorts of ironies and peculiarities to how this has turned out. And one of the peculiarities for me is, how does he remember any of this? I mean, he seems to have no problem remembering this entire World War II thing, but... As far as I remember, and I did rewatch all the X-Men films coming into this, he never regained his memory. What we learned in X-Men Origins Wolverine, we learned, but he left Stryker tied up and said, screw it, I don't need to know. I know all that's important, but... Come on, he was drinking to remember at the end of that film. I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? The less we uh, pay attention to the continuity of Origins, the happier I am. So I don't mind leaving the adamantium bullet behind. 
Right. This is continuity that goes back to the original X-Men trilogy, too, though, is his lack of remembering. You know what? One event, you, you got things pop up. I'm enjoying this so far, so I'm not getting hung up on that. Uh, he's got this memory of this guy that he saved in World War II. I don't know. Lots of radiation. Maybe that does something to the brain that retains certain memories. Who knows? I could come up with lots of comic book reasons why he has this one memory. I keep going. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? I mean, you can write yourself out of these holes. If I'm sure someone has an answer for you, Arnie. It's not us. But is it a problem for you? I had actually forgotten that little detail. So it definitely wasn't for me. It was more about... And we'll get to it, I think, when we get to the final fight of what this all means. I'm confused, but I think it's a question for the ending and not the beginning here. They set it up here, and then we jump ahead to, I guess he's back in the north. Uh, not Canada this time, he's made it all the way to Alaska, the Yukon. And he's dressed like the Geico caveman. I had to laugh when they actually refer to him as a caveman because with the long hair, the bushy beard, he really didn't look like the Wolverine. He did look... A little bit like Ted Kaczynski. Seems to be a trend with superheroes. We had the hairier Superman earlier this summer. I, I do think they wanted to butch this character up, as if he wasn't already. But again, I really get the sense that they're honoring what Aronofsky wanted. They're giving us a harder vision for this character than we've ever had before. Yeah, I do feel like a Wolverine that's sleeping out in the woods, listening to classical music all night. Like, that is something Aronofsky would have done. The only time he interacts with people is when he has to go buy new batteries, which I got to imagine happens a lot if you're playing a radio 24-7. He listens to classical music. I didn't picture that for the Wolverine. I, I think he's trying to find peace. He's running from the Wolverine in this movie. He doesn't want to be that monster. He has the nightmares of using his claws to kill Gene. He's trying to become more refined or at least distance himself from that Wolverine character, even though, you know, living in the mountains, I don't know how refined that is, but he's running from that past. He, he wants to be something different. And I, I think classical music, it's a nice little symbol for when you're trying to move away from that bestial side. Yeah, it, it's one tether in humanity that may be the only one left that he chooses to remember Gene. He wants to die. I mean, what gets established here is that it's a curse now that he is immortal, that he is so guilt-ridden about it's Gene specifically. I mean, sure, he's lost other chicks in his life, but we're to believe that this was the real one. It was the fact that Gene died and by his hand that has got him on a death wish, and one that he cannot fulfill. Yeah, he makes this solemn vow in the dream to Famke Jensen that he's never going to kill again. About three minutes later, he's storming into a bar. Blade's ready. It didn't really last for him. Well, he didn't kill. This is my point about PG. You know, I wonder if Aronofsky would have had this scene with him not making that vow and just killing these people. Is this a compromise or is this right for the character that he is struggling with whether to avenge the bear that was shot? It's all a little muddy here as to who these yokels are. Did they start the fight? Yeah, they shot the bear with the poisoned arrow and then never hunted it down. So the poison slowly drove the bear mad. And that's why it went and attacked him because it was going crazy. Now, what's interesting to back you up, Stuart, I really saw this as they're trying to almost tame Wolverine down. The comic book, this miniseries that this is based on, opens up with Wolverine fighting a bear. Like, when I saw that grizzly bear walking around, I'm like, oh, we're going to see Wolverine fight a bear. But no, he's like petting it, and he mercy kills it. But it, the comic, it's, a, it, it's the same circumstances. The bear has gone mad from poison from this hunter's arrow, but you actually see him, like, slicing off the arms and fighting this thing. Here, it's much more sympathetic. They, I think they're afraid to go there, so showing your hero 
fighting an animal, whether it's gone crazy or not. Oddly enough, in this desensitized world, I think more people would have a problem with a grown man killing a bear with his hands than another human being. Yeah, I did feel bad for the bear when he has to kill it. But it's a strange journey that we have here, because, Stuart, you're saying he should go in and kill these people. His character arc is the reverse of most character arcs I've seen, because he starts off, he's taken a solemn vow to not kill. What this movie is, what his character arc is, is coming to terms with the fact that he is, they use the term soldier, but he is a killer. In the comics, he says he's the best he is at what he does, and what he does is killing. And this entire movie is him trying to start off as a pacifist, being forced to go back to that killer lifestyle, and we'll get to the end eventually, but he flies off accepting himself as a killer. So I don't think this was a compromise that he doesn't kill the bar people. I think this is where his character starts at a position that we, the audience, don't want to see. We want to see the Wolverine. We don't want to see pussified Logan. Yeah, it really is the opposite of that miniseries where it's about the beast trying to... He's still a killer, but he's got to gain control of that. Here, it's not like, no, lose control, become the beast by the end of the film. Well, he was going to. I mean, it should be pointed out. He says, sorry, Gene, and is about to go to town on these people when Yukio strolls in. It's only because of this teenage girl that uh, he pulls back here. And I think that that is the introduction of the PG-13. You know, I do feel like that was where they said, okay, we're not going to do this. And she has some premonition power that allows her to say, oh, they're going to die next week anyway. Don't worry about it. You don't waste your claws. It's all very convenient, and I do think it's a way of not having to show us the violence that we're told this character is ready to commit, even though he's sworn to the ghost of Gene, he's not going to anymore. And Yukio is kind of an interesting one, because she comes in with that sword and does the little move and gives a speech about the sword. It's a little bit off-putting, because I don't think people would listen to this little Japanese girl when they're about to start shooting a guy and let her talk about the history of a sword and then cut chairs and beer bottles and then they just walk out. But I actually really like her in this movie. She grew on me as a character from this first scene. I think she's one of the more well-written female characters we've seen in all of our superhero movies. She is a character with depth. She's a slob. He has to get in her car and sit on fast food containers and she's a proud swordsman, and we find out later she's an orphan who was raised by Yoshida with Yoshida's granddaughter. Yeah, I really like Yukio here. She looks kind of weird. She does look like a mutant to me, so I, I was not surprised when I found out she had some kind of mutant power. Just something about her facial structures. Uh, unique, let's say. It, it's, it's a lot of character in that face. And Jacob, just so I understand, you in the original comic, she didn't have these psychic powers, right? This is an addition by the screenwriters? Yeah, this is an addition. She's just like a ninja samurai in the comic. Here, they made her a mutant. I knew it because this character was really reminding me of Minority Report. And when I looked it up, Scott Frank is one of the credited screenwriters. This guy wrote it. She's a precog. He's totally the same situation. They even end up in a hotel again to find answers. She can see a future that Wolverine is heading towards that he doesn't want to listen to. I do feel like Scott Frank borrowed heavily, intentionally or not, from what he did with Samantha Morton in that Steven Spielberg movie. But I really like that character there, and I agree with you. I like it here, too. Yeah, you know, Wolverine does have a history of having young teenage female sidekicks. In the comics, it was Kitty Pride. Here, they give him Yukio. 
this feels like a fun comic book movie to me when you have Wolverine teamed up with the teenage ninja. There's something fun. It's, it doesn't feel too dour. You know, we've seen Wolverine. He's homeless, living, you know, all gritty. We've seen atom bombs. I, there, there's a lightness. It doesn't make it too light, but it makes it fun for me. And I like her character, and I'm glad she wasn't included in this film. I think it'd be very different if he, you didn't have this character the way she's written. I was actually taken back to an old X-Files episode where Peter Doyle had the psychic ability to see how people die. And I thought it was a interesting but underutilized power. I never quite got a grasp on, does she instantly know for everyone? At one point later in the movie, she wakes up and goes, Logan, did she dream it? Does she know? It's an odd thing to add. I don't know that it adds a whole lot to this movie that she can see how people die. It's a hint that Yoshida isn't dead because she states she doesn't see his death. Yes. And then it there's an attempt for some tension when Wolverine has to take this bug off his heart. She said she had a vision that he would die with his heart beating in his hands. So I think maybe that's the only reason they put that in here to, for those two little bits, but they played it up somehow in here. I'm telling you, Minority Report, those little spidery things, they were in Minority Report, too. I, I do right. feel like it really is taken in full, that subplot, and stuck into this movie. But I like that movie, so I don't mind it here. And the reason she's there is to get Wolverine to Japan. And one thing about this movie that I think is it doesn't waste a whole lot of time getting to the main plot. It is going to give us the World War II scene. It's going to give us a couple of minutes in Alaska. But really, we need to get Logan to Yoshida in modern day. Yeah, everything else that happens is going to happen here in Japan. There's no globe hopping. There's nothing here in the Yukon that is carried over. These guys don't come back after him. It's all forgotten so we can do the Japan thing. And yeah, I'm ready for it too. I really do think that these X-Men movies excel when they're about a certain time and place. That was certainly a big draw for me with the last one, First Class. I love being in the 60s. I'm not a big action guy, but you may not know this. I do like a good martial arts movie. When it's real stunt work, samurai films can really hit my sweet spot. I didn't think I wanted another Wolverine movie. Once we finally get here and I see who he's going to fight against and I see the world and the costuming and the attention to detail, not only do I not know it's not Japan, I couldn't imagine seeing it anywhere else. I am so gung-ho for this movie now. It has won me over in a very short amount of time. You know, I'm like you, Stuart. I love martial arts film. I love samurai films. Stuart, you said that this heavy Japanese cast might scare some American viewers. You know, where are all the white people at? I, I will say, when we get to Japan, I, again, watch tons of Japanese films. They're always in subtitle. I do have some trouble. I just want to put it out there. I had to listen very closely at times to get a lot of these lines. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, I had some real problems understanding lines, understanding names. And I had to wonder, is this done in order to really adhere to the source material? And if you're going to put Wolverine in Japan, I like that... It is a Japanese cast, and they speak primarily Japanese, a lot of it not even subtitled. But I also had to think, man, this movie's cheap on the cast. There's one actor who takes a lot of money. Yeah, it is definitely a Hugh Jackman show. And let's talk about Hugh. We've complimented him in the past, but the guy's 45 now. He's been doing this a lot. Can he still do it? Does he still have it? Were you at any point concerned that maybe uh, somebody newer, hipper 
whatever should be taken over this role. You know, the funny thing is, we talked about the continuity of his memory loss. I didn't, that didn't really bug me. I was getting kind of hung up. I'm like, you could tell this guy his age since he first played Wolverine and Wolverine practically being immortal, you know, taking years and years and years of human years to age and Wolverine years. That was the one thing I'm like, he does look older. I don't think though that affected how he played the character. You know, Hugh Jackman, he's multifaceted. When there's that bathing scene where they're cutting his hair and he's in the bath, it's funny. He could do that physical comedy. I think he could still pull off the role. My only thing was I'm like, this dude is getting older. He looks older in this film. Yeah, I went in and thought him initially they picked a great actor because he doesn't appear to age. Well, having watched all of the X-Men films leading up to this one, he's definitely aged, but he pulls it off. And yeah, you talk about the physical humor, Jacob. My audience got a big laugh also, as did I, when he stabbed the arrow through that guy's hand and goes, ask me where I got it. Ask me, where did you get it? Funny you should ask. The way he delivers it, he is now effortlessly Wolverine. I saw in an interview with him, he says he can just turn it on and turn it off. If he's at a restaurant and getting bad service, he'll turn it on and tell the waiter what for. And I believe it. I think that all of his training now is purely physical because he bulked up like never before for this role. He's in his 40s. I think he had something to prove to himself. He's never been this jacked. He is physically still the part. He embodies this character so effortlessly now that they might as well be one and the same. Yeah, I'm totally with you guys. I was cynical coming in. I'm like, he's got to be looking long in the tooth here. But no, I would say he's never looked better in the part. I mean, yeah, he's super fit in this. And I do think he had extra time to train. Part of this was they were originally going to shoot in Japan, and then the Fukushima meltdown happened, and it delayed things. So he had longer prep time to prepare for this role and i do think you can see it it's physical it's evident he's never looked as buff but you're right it's not just about being buff in a world where i feel like we have interchangeable stars that you know all we got to do is put them in the tights anybody can be these superheroes anybody can be superman anybody could be batman I mean, chris pratt was able have you seen the pictures of his body getting ready for guardian of the galaxy i know this guy from being a schlub on parks and rec and this guy's been able to get in shape yeah anyone can put on the muscle right it's not that impressive you got to have something else and they're going to lose. Whenever they do have to recast Logan, I pity them because whoever comes up next is going to have to have a boatload of charisma. It's charm. That's his secret weapon. It's not the muscle. It is the wink in the eye. It's the smile. It is when he gets to go from being angry to being funny. That's where so many actors would miss the character. And Jackman just gets it. It's his second skin. It's the part that made him a star and Probably what he'll always be best remembered, and I wonder would anyone ever be as good as he is as Logan. Everybody's recastable. The next guy would obviously be the George Lazenby of the Wolverines, but... But then we'll get a Roger Moore. (laughs) (laughs) Or a Daniel Craig. I mean, you're right. It can happen again. There are people out there, but I just think it would be so easy for someone to look at the page and go, okay, I'm supposed to growl and shout up to the heavens and you know, slash my claws and flex and all of that. And they would just not get what's so essential here to liking Logan. The key to liking him is the fact that you have to have charm as well. It was something that was extremely deficient in Origins. They retain it here while still feeling like the hardest, toughest X-Men movie. They still don't forget that you need to have an amusement and uh, a likable hero. But it's an interesting conflict I find him in. And I'm not one that I really don't buy. So he wants to die 
And the offer being given to him now is that his old friend from back in Nagasaki can do it for him. He's not only a survivor of World War II, he is the owner of a high-tech, sophisticated company that can apparently do anything, including reverse his magical regenerative properties. Yeah, this is the gimme, isn't it? Uh, we could somehow pull out that one DNA strain that gives you this healing factor and put it in someone else. They say there's, they have a way to transfer it. That's, I'm like, you're not going to convince me. So yeah, the, the less you say about it, the better. That's fine. I, you know, I was ready to go into Superman 2 with this film, the way all the trailers were. Oh, Wolverine's going to lose his powers and he's going to be human and give it up. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to give up his powers. Yeah, this scene. I don't know if you guys caught it, but there were some noticeable jump edits here. This scene, I guarantee, was longer, and somebody came in and went, too talky, and cut it down, because it goes way too quickly from, I can end your suffering, to, I want to take your power away from you, and the way it all goes right there, this scene plays very clumsy to me in the final way it's edited. It shows way too much of Yoshida's hand, and it doesn't explain to me why Logan doesn't want to give it up. If What we saw at the beginning is he wants to be with Gene, he wants to die, and Gene's going to say that to him in future dreams, as I thought you wanted to be with me. Why does he say no here? I don't get it. Yeah, we've talked about this being a character driven film this is the moment that we really need we need this to be stronger if this is about who the wolverine is i i totally agree i want more information here i want to see that struggle with his immortality it would make it a stronger film i think the key is uh, you know superman 2 it was for love christopher reeve got into the chamber because he was going to get with margot kidder <laughs> uh, it sounded like a good idea in the 70s i guess but that's why he did it Wolverine at this point has not fallen for Mariko, but I think that that's what we're supposed to understand is that while he relishes the idea of dying and being with Gene, he doesn't actually have a chance to fall on his sword before he's thrust into a plot to protect this beautiful Japanese granddaughter who is being assailed by Yakuza or something. In what I would say is the movie's most confusing and weakest subplot. Which confusing and weak subplot are you referring? There are so many. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just the whole idea that they got to get the granddaughter in here. It doesn't seem like she would have any business being involved. I mean, why does this company suddenly fall to her? Why are we suddenly concerned about the soap opera dramatics between her father and the man she's supposed to marry who's in with the government and all of that? That's what I'm talking about. We needed a reason for Logan to cling to life, but this... This wouldn't do it for me. You just needed clearer spoken lines. It's in there. It's tough to get out what's going on. I, oh. I do agree with you. But they drop the lines. It's just hard to understand. No, it's not just a dialect problem. This is some convoluted bullshit. This is terrible writing. Because what this all is, is this masterminded scheme where, and this is what I refused to even begin to summarize in the plot summary. Right. But let, let's hit it. Let's gag on it. Okay. Yoshida was hoping Wolverine would just come in, give him immortality, and he'd never have to pass on the company. He doesn't want to pass on the company to anyone. He doesn't give a shit about his son, his granddaughter. He is completely self-serving, cares only for himself. Okay. But 
His masterminded plan B is that Logan is a protector. He protected him in World War II. He would protect Mariko if Mariko was in danger. So how do you put Mariko in danger? You give her the company instead of the greedy son who has wanted it this whole time, knowing that the greedy son and the greedy future grandson-in-law will team up to kill your granddaughter, (laughs) thus forcing Wolverine into the role of protector once more while being weak. Meanwhile, you take a bunch of black ninjas who are loyal to the family to kidnap Wolverine, who's chasing the Yakuza for all of this so that then you can drill into his bone marrow and steal his DNA. It's bullshit. It's convoluted. I'll say it gives us some great action scenes that I want to talk about, but I hate this plot. Yeah. Two theatrical viewings and I'm clinging onto it with fingernails and it's just enough for me to say, I kind of get it. I don't know if it's any more convoluted than many of the plots we've seen in these superhero films. (laughs) To me, it seemed average. It it was contrived. It's a long shot that it's going to work. It didn't feel any more transgressive than any other plot that we've seen, I think. I get your frustration, Arnie. I get it. I I just don't think it carries the sin that you're trying to put upon it. And I'm sorry, but was I the only one having Electra flashbacks during this plot? Well, Karigi's here. Karigi is here, but I was thinking Mariko <laughs> is the treasure. <laughs> we do have a Typhoid Mary as well, or is it Poison Ivy? Or is it Andrea Von Strucker from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. movie? Well, Viper actually is a captain america villain at least that's where she made her debut she works for hydra who didn't receive the hydra in that david hasselhoff atrocity we saw them there and we saw them in captain america the first avenger yeah she's not even a in the comic book at least she's not even a mutant here i don't know i feel like when you're dealing with these x-men and these mutants you could come up with any power i'm sure there's some mutant in the comic that's like a snake yeah, she reminded me of Toad because she spits things, right? I was wondering if she was Toad's sister or something. I, I was wondering if they were going to drop a Toad line. I, I really did. Yeah, I feel like I've seen this a lot. And maybe this is just the way that women are empowered in comic books, that their very feminine sexual arousal is their attack fear. But, I mean, that's her real power, right, is that she's sexy and then, like, can get on top of you and spit crap into your mouth. <laughs> Snowball? is she a lesbian and i'm not just saying that but there's the one line where she's like i'm immune to all toxins including the toxin known as man right yeah she's at least yes anti-male she may be asexual but she's definitely not uh no man could have her i that's a vert is that just in there because nobody could understand why any woman wouldn't swoon for hugh jackman that's what i took it as that even hugh jackman's charm is not going to win her over yeah not really a fan of this kind of characterization i guess it's just a little boring here but this is the part that feels the most comic booky. by and large this movie does feel like a samurai film and that the whole mutant powers things feels really de-emphasized particularly when wolverines is taken away from him it just doesn't feel like anything else in the marvel universe she's the one holdout she's the one thing about this that reminds me that this is an x-men movie and so i get that that's why she's here but i could have lived without her and i do think that it's just kind of 
silly and unfortunate that you have to have this man-hating copycat here. I'm going to take what you say, Stuart, and go one step further. I think Viper is poison in this film. I think she is a horrible distraction. Every time she's on screen, she's terrible. She sucks me out of the mood of this film, and she's so poorly explained. She's given no backstory, asked who she is. I'm a capitalist. How does that give you the ability to create super metal suits and steal people's DNA? No freaking clue. I hate this character, and if I could go back and digitally erase her from every frame, I would. <laughs> yeah, she's such, obviously, the bad guy. I mean, they even showed it in the trailer, sticking out her tongue. Okay, that's the bad guy. I almost thought one of the twists with this convoluted plot was that she was actually going to be there to help Wolverine, because I'm like, she's so obviously bad. What's her backstory? And yeah, you're right, Arnie. We don't know. It's just she's bad, and that's why she's doing bad things. She distracts every scene she's in. When Yoshida fakes his own death, which is way too telegraphed because Yukio yes. goes, I didn't see it. Maybe because he isn't dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was a, a, a give me, you know. And at the funeral, there's a big Yakuza attack and there's all this action going on. And we just cut to Viper with a cell phone. Why is she filming this? We never get a reason why she would film this fight. We don't know what she's attempting to do with the camera that couldn't be done just by watching. Is she attempting to witness if Wolverine was weakened by the thing she planted in his mouth with a kiss? But she's working for Yoshida, the house of Yoshida. It's later established in dialogue. There's two people who are working specifically for the old man. She and Harada. And they're not partnering up, but they're both under the service of him, which means that they're fighting off these Yakuza, right? That That's the point. They want to reclaim Moriko and keep any Yakuza that might have aims for actually hurting her off the path. So I don't know why she's documenting. I just got the sense that they wanted to establish her with a color. Every time we see her, she's named Dr. Green. And every time we see her, the green color is prominent. Her cell phone is green. The green tea that Logan drinks right before he gets poisoned is, you know, come from her. I, I just feel like they're setting up a color theory here in which every time we see the color green, we know she's coming and we know something bad's going to happen. I like her better than... Typhoid Mary, she's no mystique. She might not even be a toad, but she's kind of a generic mutant that basically serves the hotness factor and little else. Uh, she's not in it much. I will say I largely forget about her once they go on the run. Well, just so we can not talk about her ever again, <laughs> I agree with you until the final climax when there's the two-pronged battle and Viper is involved in this and because you can't have Wolverine hit a girl, we bring in Yukio to fight her and she gets injured, she falls down, she starts ripping off her own flesh for no apparent reason. Wolverine is having the climactic battle and we're spending time watching her pull latex makeup off her own face. She is a distraction. She's a step away from jar-jarring this final fight. And so it, during the first three quarters of the movie, I disliked her. During the climax, I hated her and what she did to this movie. And what's funny is I looked her up on Wiki, and in the original Wolverine comics, she was the one in charge. Silver Samurai was her bodyguard, 
she was working for Hydra and the mastermind behind everything. So the only thing I can figure is she was so important to that storyline, they felt they had to shoehorn her in and make her a mutant just because they don't have the rights to Hydra, so they have to give her something else. But I do think she poisons this film, and this is one of the huge dings I will give it because she breaks up the flow and kills the pacing with a whole lot of illogical plot points. I think you're trying to sell it a bit strong. I didn't find her that distracting because as Stuart said, she's not in it that much. And by the end, you know, of course, we're going to get Yukio versus Viper, Wolverine versus Silver Samurai. She starts pulling off her skin. I'm laughing. It's, you know what? Okay, we're going to throw some comic book moments in here. We've just seen Wolverine, you know, take on all these ninjas. Uh, I'm going with that aspect. I'm not taking it that seriously. I don't take this whole film too seriously because of a lot of the inconsistencies. I'm being entertained, but it's not ruining the film for me when she pulls off her skin. Her name's Viper. Okay. She's shedding, shed, she's shedding skin. She's being a snake. Whatever. I'm enjoying it. You're being nicer to her than you were to Toad, and I think that is not appropriate. But let's not get there. We got a fight on a bullet train. We got Yakuza's. We got ninjas. I We got a lot of fights going on in this film. How'd you guys see the film? Did you see it in 2D or 3D? 2D. I saw it in 3D the first time, and during these specific fights in the funeral and the bullet train, everything was so freaking blurry. It was so ruinous to my experience, I had to go back and see it again in 2D. And I will say, whether or not I recommend this film, the 2D experience was so much more pleasurable than that 3D monstrosity. Wow. Then let me counter that with saying that I saw this at a free screening, an industry screening. Around town in L.A., they oftentimes will show movies to other executives. And if you know the right people, you can end up going. And they usually are some of the highest quality projections of a film you can have. I saw this on the Fox lot. I saw it in Real D. And these scenes really were great. I actually would say that up to this point, we haven't had an action scene. When it starts happening, I'm not a big fan of 2D conversion, but when they're on top of that bullet train fighting and all of that, the 3D enhances it. I actually thought it was more exciting by being in 3D and by having those low-hanging rails and such flying at my face. I, I, I feel like it really worked, and I wonder if it's a projection issue. I wonder if maybe the standards for where you saw your 3D were different from where I saw mine, because it was a very fine demonstration where I was at. Well, I didn't see this opening week, and by week two, the 3D was only being shown twice a day and shuttled into a tiny, tiny corner theater, so it's very possible the projector wasn't properly calibrated, but I found this scene to be far more exciting in the 2D than the 3D, but this bullet train fight, awesome. High point of the entire film is here on this bullet train, and I thought I wouldn't like it. I was afraid of too much CGI fakery when I saw the clips from it from the trailers, but this is a kinetic, video gamey, but a lot of fun, and in fact, somewhat funny action sequence. Yeah, I gotta say, all these action sequences, before this, we had a fight at the funeral, and now on this bullet train... It really is enhanced because Wolverine is vulnerable. He didn't choose to give up his powers, but they've been taken from him. And so he's getting hurt. He's limping when he gets shot. And I felt that really adds to this. It adds some tension because he's not just someone that's going to grow an eyeball back if it gets shot out. 
yeah, it makes it higher stakes. And even if it didn't have that, even if it were the same old Logan, I just think that these are really well staged. And part of it's my bias maybe for liking ninja samurai kind of stuff, but it's just well done here. I mean, I just think that I didn't need it. I didn't miss it. But a half hour has passed by without much action. And once it's introduced, I didn't realize how much I wanted it. I mean, I think that's a key to a good action movie is that they don't have to do this all the time. When you look at Origins, they couldn't wait to get to the next car flipping, helicopter crashing, ridiculous CGI fest. Here it's been literally 30 minutes of the movie and it just comes alive. It just pops. When you have something good, you don't need to overkill it. You can just do it at the right moment and it's even more effective. Again, I think you're singing the praise is a little too high, though. I love, love, love the bullet train sequence. But as far as the other fights go, I'm going to really ding Mangold. I don't think this guy can film action. It's staged well. I don't think it's shot very well. I don't think the fight at the funeral is exciting in the least. At no point does my adrenaline get pumped. I think I got more excitement out of some of the comedic action in Red 2 than I did out of a lot of these close fighting sequences. And maybe he's trying to stay too character-driven or be too artsy because when Wolverine gets shot, he's going to go into this really weird kind of lens baby, distorted depth of field effect or all that. But I don't think Mangold's strength is shooting action. And I wonder if the bullet train sequence was so effects heavy that it all fell to second unit effects people. And that's why it's so good. Well, I, I would put it this way. If the only thing you liked was the bullet train sequence, then I wouldn't credit Mangold with that. I'm not going to try and parse this out. I think most of the action here is really good. What I like about the earlier fight at the funeral is how it uses the 3D. Either Mangold or his cinematographer was aware that this was going to be in a 3D format. And so you have all these different tiers of action. You have this character running around on the roofs and he's looking down at other characters and shooting things at them. And that's all really very effective in the 3D format. I don't know how it would play in 2D, but I, it really grabbed me. Yeah, you know what? It worked for me in 2D. This was no Enter the Dragon or any great samurai film with the fight and the choreography, but for what I would expect from a, you know, mainstream Hollywood film like this where, you know, you got to get some major star that somehow got to become a magical black belt all of a sudden. You know, it was effective to me that there's lots of different styles going on. There are guns, there are swords, there's batons, there's bow and arrows. I I enjoyed all this. I liked the different levels. I was excited by the concept behind the action. I was excited by Logan's vulnerability. I liked the parkour guy jumping on the roofs, even though I'm yeah. over parkour by this point. I was down with that. I, again, I saw it in 3D. I don't think it added anything to be in 3D to have somebody high up and down below because of how it was shot. I think the cinematographer was very good. I think the scene where Logan's following Mariko into the train station and you see Hugh Jackman stand out in a huge crowd was a really, really glorious shot. I think the cinematographer knows what he's doing, but I just don't think the action is framed very well. It doesn't give me a sense of scope. It's almost the same problem I had with Michael Bay's Transformers, where it's so close up and in the face that I can't see what's happening. And to hear you say it, this is all Australia. What I'm looking at was not on location filming in Japan. I don't know what they filmed in Japan. I only know they were there for only a couple of days. So I'm guessing the funerals, the houses, all of those were sets in Australia and the Japanese location shooting were probably 
the outdoor scenes when they were driving around and finding the hotel of love. So are you saying I should cancel my ticket that I bought to Japan? Because I definitely <laughs> want to go to the Mission to Mars room. Yeah. <laughs> like when they read off those rooms, I'm like, Mission to Mars, that's the one you got to pick. Like, and they picked it. <laughs> you don't have to go to Japan for that, though, Jacob. I can point you to some places here in Illinois. And here's where a pivotal character beat happens. All right, so Logan didn't want to live anymore. He didn't know it had been taken from him until he shot at the funeral. A couple days have passed since he was lip-locked with Viper. He didn't do any experiments, but whatever. He now knows for sure that he's dying, and he's taking the bullet out and continuing to fight and live because of Moriko, because he doesn't believe that she can live without him protecting her. Is this viable as a conflict? I don't understand why he's so invested in Mariko. I also don't understand Mariko hardly at all. Right. One of the first scenes we see her, she is running towards a clifftop about to jump off and commit suicide. And he stops her from doing that because it was a very emotional moment. It would be something she'd regret possibly halfway down. She then ignores all of his attempts to help. And... Logan says, if you want to die, you're playing this just right. Is she suicidal? Later on, she tells her father, I never wanted to die. Then why were you jumping off a freaking cliff? (laughs) Women are an emotional bunch, aren't they? Hey, now, don't be misogynistic. She was suicidal and they claim she wasn't. I, again, think that there must be some cut scenes that explain she was going to jump off that cliff because her parkour boyfriend was going to catch her something I needed something to understand her motivation. Right now, she comes off as a mega bitch, and I'm like, let her die. Yeah, it reminded me of going back to our Bond series, Bond's introduction to one of his best female companions, the one that he actually marries. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you have Diana Rigg. Her first scene is waiting out to die in the ocean. But over time, you see how he wins her over. You can't have two suicidal people falling in love. It doesn't work that way. Someone has got to want to live. Someone has got to care. I need somebody to be invested in the other. She doesn't want him around and apparently doesn't want to live. He doesn't want to live anymore and wants to join Gene. The only one that wants to live is Yoshida. I say let him. I mean, have him suck the powers out. Let him have it because nobody else here seems to really want to live that badly. And I think that's a real problem here for the second half of this movie is I need to believe that she is restorative for Logan and She's really not. They have almost no time together. They have one sex scene, and it comes too late, in my estimation. There's been no charm up until that point between the two of them. And the sex scene, are we supposed to get that Logan's into her? Because he's still pining over Jean. Is it just a lay? Is he just horny because it's been so long since he last had some? It's a rebound girl. No, it's transference. We're to believe that he cares about Mariko as much as he cares about Jean by the end of it. Otherwise, why does he claim to be the Wolverine? Why does he insist that he doesn't want to die anymore when he could? I mean, he's here in the sex hotel. He could literally just fall over and let it all go. But he's holding out for Mariko. I need something stronger there. I need to believe that Mariko is worth living for. And she doesn't give him that. And I, I don't see it. Again, I'm going to go, this is mediocre storytelling. This is like a lot of 
movies out there. It, it's middle of the road. It's they're falling in love because they're beautiful people. I I don't see the sins of this film greater than other ones. It, this is an average film. These are average contrivances, average characters. I think a lot of times the film expects the audience, oh, she's cute, he's cute, okay, they're together, they're going to fall in love. That's how I'm taking this. I, yeah, there is nothing deeper there, and that's a bad thing, especially because I was so interested in this film being character-driven that I would like more character in it. It starts off that way, and as it goes along, it kind of falls back in that mediocrity that we've seen a lot of films, especially action films. It's the hot guy goes in and saves random hot girl, and they become a love interest throughout the journey of the film. But, hey, you must have loved the next half hour of the film then, because there's no action. It's all character moments. From the love hotel on, it is all about Mariko and Logan in Japan, they go to the Love Hotel, then Logan gets his bullets removed from a vet, and he needs time to heal in Nagasaki, where she can teach him, don't stick your chopsticks upright, because it's like death incense, and all of this different Japanese culture. I was getting various whiffs of Karate Kid Part 2 versus Attack of the Clones with Anakin and Padme in the fields. Yeah, you're right. Karate Kid 2, but not as strong. You know, we needed a director that can maybe show us that beautiful landscape a bit more. We get little things like, oh, see, even Nagasaki has grown back after the devastation. And, you know, we get all these little lines of quote-unquote oriental wisdom, the chopsticks. You know, I wish some of that stuff paid off more instead of just being kind of pandering and, and oh, the mystical Japanese. And But I never felt bored during this. You know, you say that you take the action away. I'm still engaged. I'm still going along with the film. No, I like it. I want to say I do believe that Nagasaki would be restorative. I think it's more exciting than Mariko. I mean, screw her. She wants to go <laughs> off in the house. Fine. I like the moment where he goes back and looks at the hole that he was imprisoned in. I mean, that's the part where I'm seeing the wheels click inside Logan and he's letting me into who he really is as a person. He's softening and not in a wimpy way. I mean, in a way that's vulnerable and believable. And this part of the movie could have easily failed. I actually think it's strong and it's not because the love story is working. It's because, yeah, I buy this location and I, I like these moments. And I do think Mangold is a proven director of dramatic moments. And I think that many of these are, are hitting their marks. Wow. I'm on the opposite page of the two of you. Jacob, I was bored. I was really, really bored. And the reason is because I don't care about these characters. They've given me nothing in the way of insight into Mariko. And Stuart, you said this is Logan's insight to see Nagasaki growing back. I don't quite get what his great revelation here is. He has a second part of the flashback. We talked about the whole sword thing already, but it's at this point in the movie that Logan flashes back to turning down that sword. What did he see to make him think about the sword, and what does that have to do with anything? I'm not invested in these characters from the way that they've been sold to me to the point where I can endure this 30 minutes. I agree that the sword part is confusing. Why they keep bringing up this sword is frustrating. When we get to the end, I'll, I'll have some more thoughts on that. But no, I do think that, okay, here's a character that always perceived himself as invulnerable, and now he realizes he has the option to die, and he has a mentality that there's nothing to live for, and he goes back to the place where he's seen mass devastation, mass annihilation. I mean, of course, he's been at every war, so I don't know why this one would be special, but go with me here. I mean, <laughs> in the beginning of the movie, he saw everybody wiped out, 
it would be quite a thing to come back and realize that there's beauty, that it can be reborn again. I think it's as simple as that. And I believe it because I buy the location scout. I buy the set decorator. They have done a really good job of making me believe I am there, and I like that. I'm glad that we're not dealing with more mutants hunting them down and more comic booky stuff. I mean, I like the quote-unquote realism of this moment. To give this film its credit, soon after this, when Mariko gets kidnapped by the Yakuza, and we're going to go back into lots of ninjas and big giant Terminator robots and all that, I do feel almost a sense of loss that we've lost these quiet moments, the scenery. When it does go back into comic book mode, I enjoy that, but I do feel a noticeable change. I do feel like I'm missing something that I, that I enjoyed in this film. The one reason why I'm not complaining is because my favorite new character is back. It's necessitated by Yukio's arrival that we're doing all of those things. And let's face it, wouldn't we all rather see Logan in love with Yukio than Moriko? Of course. Yeah, because Yukio's fun and Moriko's confusing. <laughs> yeah. Plus, Logan seems to have a thing for dangerous women, other than that silver fox who we all want to forget. I mean, Jean Grey, she was dangerous and powerful. Yukio, dangerous and powerful. Mariko, schizo and suicidal. So yeah, he, he picked the wrong woman. But I do enjoy this film when the action does pick back up. When Mariko gets kidnapped again and they have to find her, I like that Logan goes a little bit crazy. He captures one of the guys and the guy's like, I'll never talk. Logan's just going to start slicing him until he does. And then we get a very amusing scene where we find Mariko's fiancé, who, again, poorly defined, barely saw him before, but now he's having a three-way with two other women. Yeah, you know, I almost feel like it's a mistake to leave Nagasaki. It started in Nagasaki. I feel like it should have ended here. But I would have hated to miss out on where we're headed. I mean, I do feel like they promised us in that tapestry that there was a village full of ninjas. I understand that we're watching a comic book movie and that necessitates having a big ninja action-y battle. If they're not going to have mutants coming at us, I do think that they have to go bigger here. So... I think the third act, as problematic as it is, and even having to duct tape parts of Minority Report into it in order to get there, I more or less stay on board. And I realize that that's where I'm really giving the movie a lot, because I think narratively, it falls apart here as Logan has reclaimed the title of Wolverine. This is where we finally learn that he's a soldier again, and that he will kill again, and that Mariko is his new gene. And that there's a little spider in his heart that's making him have all these problems to begin with. This is an easy write-off. They don't give that away at the beginning. You just see this green mist and Viper shows up. You don't know if she's a hallucination or what. I didn't know if he was drugged and they did some operation on him while he was drugged. I'm glad there was some kind of technical reason. It was, it was very clear cut what you had to do to solve the problem. Take that spider out. I like how they set it up, though, because it is one of the few things in that scene where Yoshida and Logan first meet again is Logan looks at the screen and sees Yoshida has these robot spiders in his lungs and that these are scanners that show it. And so when he gets there and gets the scanners and we see the robots, I'm like, ah, that was actually a subtle setup. I kind of like that. And it does explain how he lost his powers. This was very confusing. We knew Viper had done something because he thought he was kissing Gene. It turned out he was kissing Viper and choked on something and it's really subtly in there you could have figured it out though and 
sure enough, there it is. It kind of reminded me of Alien, too, the way it gets inside of you and latches on. You know, this is another part where I felt like, okay, R-rated would have been a little bit better. It does. It happens infrequently. For the most part, I think the PG-13 is fine, but... Let's face it, Yukio's prediction is that he's going to die in a puddle of his own blood with his heart ripped out of his chest. How much cooler would it have been if we actually saw that? They do as much as they can with the rating that they want to achieve, but I think that it would sell the idea that he was really dead dead a little bit stronger if we saw him rip out his beating heart in order to get this little spider off of it. Technically, she doesn't say his heart is ever out of his chest. I think that that would be hard for me to believe he could just stick it back in there. What she says is, your heart is in your hand. Right. Which... And my thinking is, you know, my hand is not normally inside my chest cavity. So I just, (laughs) I had a visual of him holding it. And so I wanted to see that. I think that that would have been a stronger thing. And the man can regenerate anything. So yeah, it could have flopped back into his chest and he would have been just fine. Stuart, you're not alone. I did think that when she said she saw his death and he was holding his beating heart, I'm like, oh, it's going to get ripped out of him, put in his hand, or he's going to rip it out himself for some reason. I'm right there with you. You say hand and heart. I'm thinking outside the chest. Yeah, and I think if they had the rating R, they would have gone that way. I don't know that they would have actually removed it from his chest. It's what you're supposed to think. You're not supposed to think it would still be in his chest. But I think that if this was R-rated, the scene of him cutting himself open would be gorier. And that scene already kind of made my sphincter close up a little bit (laughs) as he's cutting himself open. And I think in R-rating, it would have been gorier. I don't think that he would have started pulling out organs, though. That would be a little too far even for this film. But it's a good scene. I like that Yuriko gets something to do here with protecting him from Sinjin, who's gone completely homicidal himself and has to give Wolverine the time he needs to heal. And I think there are some really exciting, suspenseful moments. I know how this movie is going to end, but what is done here both in the surgery and at the end where new things are happening to Wolverine that we've never seen before that actually do jeopardize his status quo. Those have me invested. You guys don't like, seem to not like this last half hour of action. I'm not necessarily needing explosions every five minutes, but after some really banal drama, this to me is a step back up for the end. No, 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 Arnie. I'm all down. I cannot wait to see Wolverine take on ninjas. That's why I'm watching a Wolverine in Japan movie. But I I was just saying there was a sense of loss that there was something effective about the slower moments that I I did feel like, oh, I, I kind of enjoyed that once the tone shifted to the action film. Yeah, and all I said was I think everything that they staged should have happened in Nagasaki. I think that all the battles, it was a homecoming. That would make sense of where it would happen. But the fact that it turns action-packed is the right impulse. And I've really been impressed with the restraint of this movie. But I'm not saying that it needs to be a drama. I'm not saying that it needs to excise all continuity with previous X-Men movies. Yeah, we need a big blowout here. And they provide a lot. You know, talking about Hugh Jackman getting in shape, there's this scene. He's fighting Shinjen. They're doing the samurai thing. Wolverine gets a sword put through him, and you kind of see it in silhouette. Dude, Jackman is lean in that. I didn't know if that was CGI or if he was just doing some extra crunches. Because, man, going back to the shape he was in for this film, he was lean and cut. 
when he had his shirt off during this fight here. I actually learned a little bit about it. It's a nifty trick. And he learned it from The Rock. He would dehydrate himself for 36 hours before all of his shirtless scenes to become extra veiny. Wow. 36 hours? Yeah. Aren't you almost dead at that point? (laughs) He said he was filming a little bit lightheaded and didn't feel so great, (laughs) but he looked really good. Oh, my God. Yeah, great-looking corpse. My God, I did not recommend it on that (laughs) as a a strategy for uh, impressing. Uh, If that's what it takes to look that way, may I forever be flabby. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. No water for 36 hours. Jeez. But, yeah, you can't argue with the results. Obviously, he is selling the physicality. He does look older in the face, but I feel like he's still got it here in these action moments, and I'm down. But one thing I knew from this movie coming in, because of toys and marketing... Trailers? Well, not even the trailers, because I wouldn't have recognized it. I knew somewhere in this movie we'd get the Silver Samurai. And they kind of alluded to it at the funeral. There's like, there's the armor of the Silver Samurai that will forever watch over Grandfather. And that armor did look like the comic incarnation. But I knew at some point... Somebody was going to get in a big CGI suit and be a giant robotic silver samurai. That was from the trailer. And my question throughout was who was going to be in that suit? And I primarily thought it would be Yoshida, but there was a period of time where I thought it could be his son. When we get to the end, though, and we see Mariko captured by Viper and sitting in the back is the big metal suit, of course we know who's in it. Yeah, there's not much surprise at really any of this. It's very rote at this point. I mean, this movie has had surprising turns and dramatic pauses. But from this point on, I know exactly what I'm going to get. Except I did not see the declawing coming. That is the one move that they made that, well, I can't say I didn't see it coming. Someone walking out of the previous screening said, I like the part where Wolverine found out that his father was Darth Vader, which had me thinking a lot about Empire Strikes Back. It's clearly something they do a lot here with cutting off the hand and the fact that it's really the grandfather. It does have an Empire Strikes Back quality to it. Yeah, and I don't want to discount the build-up to this. Him fighting ninjas, getting there, all the arrows in his backs with the the ropes. I mean, that's all exciting. Yeah, when you get to him versus Silver Samurai, it is road. And I think maybe that's why I did grasp onto the Yukio versus Viper stuff. There seemed to be a bit more fun there, ripping off the skin and you know putting the rope around her neck and hanging her. Whereas you're just getting a sword fight, and it's not a particularly exciting one between Silver Samurai and Wolverine. Well, first of all. I'm looking at this as a sequel to X-Men Origins Wolverine. And one of the things we all agreed about was the CGI in that film was downright embarrassing. And so, so far, I've been fairly okay with the CGI used. It's been used in subtle ways. But once Silver Samurai shows up, oh my god, he's terrible. I mean, it's a guy in a big metal suit. They were able to do that with Iron Man in 2008. I feel like Obadiah Stane. Tony built this in a cave with a bunch of scraps! You're 20th Century Fox! This is all you can do? And he's moving. I I swear to God, I got a RoboCop 2 vibe off of it. It was almost like stop motion from 1989 bad. But when the fight comes, it gets a little bit better. And I didn't have somebody walking out of the theater before me saying that he was going to lose his claws. But the way the fight was staged, the fact that they set up that the silver suit was adamantium, and the fact that the sword glowed red, all of a sudden it hit me. He could take off Wolverine's claws. And that excited me in a pretty rote fight. There was danger there. Would Wolverine lose his claws? If he loses a hand, it'll grow back. 
But if he loses his claws, I mean, Stryker's dead. <laughs> Who's going to put yeah. the metal back on? And so I saw it coming in the fight. I'm like, will they go there? That was the most invested in this whole movie I was, was wondering if they'd go there. And then when they do go there, I'm really excited about what that means. And the fact that they did change status quo. This wasn't treading water until they got to Days of Future Past. They wanted to get back to Bone. When he loses that first set of claws, I'm like, oh, damn, they're doing something here. They're not going to play it safe. You know, as far as a comic book movie goes with the major character like Wolverine, you know, taking away his adamantium claws is a big deal. He's you know, I had no doubt that the bone would grow back, but now I'm like, well, I'm going to be looking for that in the next film. You better have that bone or they better explain how they got this. Maybe they'll melt down the suit. Yeah, I thought this was a, a real surprise revelation here, one I didn't anticipate. And so my understanding is correct, then. It's gone. It's not coming back unless he has a procedure again. Yeah, the claws grow back, but yeah, the adamantium's not on him. You know what I thought would happen in the end credit scene? I thought Magneto would fix it. Because in the comic, as you mentioned in a previous podcast, Jacob, I think our first X-Men Brian Singer one, in the comic, Magneto removed all the adamantium from Logan's bones. And in the comics for years, it was always thought those claws were created when they put the adamantium on them. And when this was done in the early 90s, I mean, Wolverine had been around for about 20 years, was the first time that it was discovered the claws were part of his skeletal structure, not a result of the metal. And so when you get Magneto showing back up, I'm like, well, I guess he could just take a little extra off the elbow. But (laughs) what happened here, I read some interviews, and Mangold likes the bone claws better. It is a personal preference for him. He thinks they're more raw, more primal. And so for him, and I think when making this, he wasn't looking at Days of Future Past. He was looking at, what if I make the Wolverine 2 or something? He likes bone. And so he set it up so that he gets his bone. Now we're getting back to Brian Singer. If Brian Singer wants metal, hell, he's bringing back half the characters of the movies from the dead. He can explain away some metal on some claws. Well, maybe he won't need bone claws or adamantium claws. Maybe he'll just use the samurai sword, which has been this thing they've been passing around. You take it! You take it! No, you take it! This whole movie here. But that's how he basically wins the fight, is he finally takes the sword that the guy wanted him to have all of this time to decapitate him. No, 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 no. Yukio has the sword. It's the named sword. When Jackman didn't take it, it was given to Yu-Gi-Oh! What Jackman picks up is some crazy-ass cyber sword from Lawnmower Man, and when he puts the two hands on it like he was taught to do with a proper Japanese sword, that's when it glows so it can cut through adamantium. But it is not the sword, it's just a sword. Okay, because I thought it was highly ironic that the sword that the man begged him to take is the weapon by which he puts him down, or at least he thinks he does in this first round. We'll find out that although he decapitated the robot, the man's flesh and bone head is still very much attached to whatever's left of his shriveled body stuffed in the giant robot. (laughs) You want to talk about contrived plot points, Arnie? I mean, the fact that we get this line in some flashback, must hold the handle with both hands. And that's what he has to do here to get it to activate. I swear we saw Silver Samurai fiery adamantium sword with one hand. I don't get why two hands all of a sudden activates everything. Yeah, Silver Samurai was attacking with two swords, one in each hand. But Logan has to wrap both hands around the hilt. It makes no sense. 
Oh, I could have sworn that this was the original sword. And it, all right, I guess that alleviates a lot of my questions then about the meaning of the sword and and yeah, there is no meaning of the sword. There's no okay. meaning. It's just just a rejected gift. Okay. <laughs> Yukio really kicks ass with it. Mm. Well, and it's not his to deliver the death blow. It is Moriko using Logan's severed claw. I don't know that I saw that coming. This was a strange, not entirely satisfying choice. I guess if I had really felt like she had a reason to hate her grandfather or that what he put her through was so awful, was she ever in danger? Here's the thing that I get about her and the stabbing at the end. There's this line Viper says, Why do you think your grandfather picked you? Is it because you're so strong or because you're so weak? Implying that because he never really intended to bequeath to anyone, he picked the weakest member of the family who he could manipulate instead of somebody strong who would actually fight for the company. But by mm-hmm. the same token, there's another completely contradictory scene where Mariko's talking to her dad, and the dad is saying, genes sometimes skip a generation, and you are like a mirror image of my father. The two of you have the same business sense. So you could almost look at this whole thing as Mariko is like, Screw you. I'm the head of the business now. Stabbed him in the face. She's been manipulated by different forces throughout the film. I think she, Stuart, to answer your question, yes, when the Yakuza were after her, I think her life really was in danger. I don't think the son, Shinjen, knew Yoshida, his father's plot here. He was really trying to kill her so he could get the business. And somehow Yoshida knew that would be the case. <laughs> I don't know. Again, this is the weakest part of the movie. Anything dealing with Mariko, I feel like just isn't working. Not necessarily the fault of the actress, although she's not totally blowing me away, but I just didn't see this as her fight and I didn't want her to be the the last word on this fight that was set up long before she was born between Logan and Yoshida in Nagasaki. And then that's pretty much all we get from that point on. Once Silver Samurai gets the adamantium in the head, it's over and Logan's ready to go off and Mariko runs the company. Wait a minute. I thought the whole reason he chose life was because of this woman. See you around? You're coming back, right? She's like at the airport. You're going to come back, huh? Yeah. Mm hmm. <laughs> Two years later, he's still traveling by air and I don't see him uh, giving her a phone call. This was all for nothing. We'll never see this Mariko again, correct? I think that this wasn't for nothing. This was him coming to terms with him being a killer. I never got that he loved her. I don't even think she loved him either. I think that it was just they were together and, hey, why not? It was an exciting time. It was an emotionally charged time. But did you really think the two of them were in love? I, that's why I was confused this whole time. Hey, why not is a terrible character motivation. Just want to put it out there, <laughs> aspiring screenwriters. Hey, why not bang this chick and then decide that I don't really want to die? I mean, they play some lip service where he has a dialogue with Gene's ghost and is like, you were a really bad person and you were hurting people and I had to do it. I, I just feel like you need to earn that kind of character transformation. You can't say it. You can't imply it through a roll in the hay. I needed to believe that Mariko was special enough to pull him back from suicide and depression. And if she was, it's been quickly forgotten. Yukio's the cooler one anyway. If I'm going to go globetrotting, fighting bad guys, that's the one I want to be hanging out with. I think Logan makes the right decision in the end. Yeah, agreed. It's not exactly Casablanca here at the airport. It's uh, <laughs> it's an indifferent goodbye. Yeah, but Yukio goes along and 
I'm your bodyguard. Who we'll never see again. Where do they go? It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter in this movie. Because credits <laughs> roll, we're like, screw everything that happened two years later. It's clear they didn't have an ending, or the ending was completely scrapped because they have a new movie coming. Whichever the case is, you're right. All of this adventure is for naught. Let's talk X-Men Days of Future Past, shall we? Here's the most shocking thing about this scene in the end credits. I thought for sure Brian Singer directed it, right? I mean, all these people are up there in Canada. They're filming Days of Future Past. No, they actually flew in Mangold for a couple of days to shoot this final scene. It might have been contractual. They may have wished that that case, but you never know what the what the lawyers have cooked up. That that may have been a necessity. Now, last I recall, and I again haven't gone back to look at any X Men movie it, since 2010 when we covered the original franchise arc. Professor X was a comatose reincarnated something in a bed. What was the whole end thing at Last Stand where we thought he was back, but we weren't sure? It could have been a twin brother. Okay. And that's what Singer has alluded to in interviews and at Comic-Con. He said he really wants to fix a lot of things in the franchise, implying that part three didn't go the way he wanted it to. Well, he didn't. Well, make he should have. Yeah, he should have made it if he wanted it to go a certain way. <laughs> Superman returns instead. I think that we all would have preferred him fix that. He said he wanted to bring Cyclops back, but there really wasn't a way to do that. But there was that little out with Xavier transferring his consciousness at the end, and the fact that there's time travel involved. So yeah, despite the fact that we saw Xavier atomized. Xavier's back, despite the fact that we saw Magneto cured, Magneto's back and floating change out of a security thing and still able to hold Logan's hand. There's still metal up the hand, if not the claws. Well, his entire skeleton has metal on it. And so whatever happened in part three is gone. These two are now teamed up and they need Logan's help. Right. Obviously, the villain is something called Trask Industries that... Some kind of company that's a threat to mutants. I don't know anything about the plots that they're taking from, but I assume this is a well-established villain from the comics, Jacob? Days of Future Past. I mean, it's, I think it's only an issue, maybe two issues. I mean, it, it wasn't like today where this would have been a 10-issue huge crossover, but it's one of those storylines that has always been one of the best X-Men storylines, one that's always stood out. And Trask is being played by Peter Dinklage, which is a little bit of a different representation than the comics. Yeah, I do know we'll get Sentinels. We saw Logan cut the head off of one in the Danger Room in The Last Stand, but now I've seen pictures, and we're going to be getting them. Yeah, viral video marketing for Days of Future Past occurred before Wolverine was even out a full weekend. The studio's forgotten it. We're intended to forget it. The big exciting thing is next year's massive one, which is going to kick off a huge X-Men franchise they're planning to start basically marveling it they said that they're looking at the wolverine as the iron man to get people in on a solo film but there will be an x-men film every year for the foreseeable future next year is days of future past 2015 is x-force they haven't decided what's after that but they want to have their own marvel universe full of mutants wow so it's never going back to disney not as long as it's profitable. They just got to keep adding those zeros. They, they can buy it eventually. But before we get too excited about future past, let's finish with the Wolverine. 
Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Wolverine? Jacob. Look, we've talked about a lot of the plot contrivances, the relationships that didn't quite make sense. But what stands out to me is all the surprises this film had, that it was more character driven, that they took certain risks by removing the adamantium clause, that, you know, they really did stick with Wolverine in Japan. And it was him with, you know, mostly ninjas and a bunch of Japanese people. They, they really committed to that, even though it was in Australia most of the time. And so I guess I, I saw a mediocre film with some things that were really good, some things I was not expecting, especially after coming after that Origins film. I, I liked the quieter tone, the more intimate tone that this was a movie. You know, they call it The Wolverine. Yes, it's a film about him. They didn't really try to overstuff it with tens and tens of mutants like we've seen in the other films. You know, we, yeah, we have Viper, we have Yukio, but it, it's really a story about the Wolverine. Is it told with exact precision and, and that, all that. No, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the Iron Man films, you know, even the weaker ones, like three, th- those are really good superhero movies, but also balancing that character moments and, and having the character development and always trying to say something about Tony Stark. And I felt they tried to do that here. It wasn't the best script. If Aronofsky was involved, maybe it would have been better. But I, you know, I think this is a pretty solid action film. And, you know, as far as superhero films go, I, I like the direction of this one. I liked that it was mostly self-contained, that it wasn't about all the explosions and trying to stick in a hundred different comic book characters. I'm going to give this one a, a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, no one wanted to see this less than I did. I mean, truly, I was dreading the idea of going back to where I had pulled myself out of with X-Men Origins. What a pleasant surprise to find out that although there are still many plot problems and things that are, are, are wrong here, what anchors this movie is mood. They have a really good vibe going on here. They have the right actor in the right location, and they have the right balance of action, intrigue, and character. And this is an easy recommend. I mean, I would go so far as to say it's actually probably my favorite superhero movie of the summer, Except I haven't seen every superhero movie of the summer. That'll be cleared up next week when we cover Kick-Ass 2. But I dare say it has not been a great 2013 as far as big franchise films go. I don't feel like we've had a really solid knock-it-out-of-the-park film. This may be the best, though, honestly, for all of its problems. And maybe that's saying a lot about how Hollywood is off of its games. But it's better than Iron Man 3. It's better than Man of Steel. It was better than Star Trek. I think that, yeah, if you're going to see one of the movies we've covered this summer, this is the one to see. Recommend. I disagree. I'm left really teetering because I view this film not really as 3X, but 4. I mean, every half hour, something's a little bit different. The first half hour is set up, and I'm intrigued and excited by this new vision of Wolverine and where it's going. The second half hour is the best action of the movie with the funeral and the bullet train, but I'm really confused by what the character motivations are, and I'm really left frustrated by the poor filming. Then the third half hour is, to me, intolerable. I was so bored. When I saw this in 3D, it was a Monday night. It was a private screening. I was the only one in the theater. And I was so disinterested, I popped out my smartphone and started checking my email. I just didn't want to watch it. Couldn't pay attention to it. 
couldn't care less about it. When the final act comes of action, it was okay. It wasn't as good as the bullet train, the CGI Silver Samurai, what a bastardization of a comic character, and what a horrible effect, and really unforgivable that Fox is still putting out movies, blockbuster films with this level of Sharknado special effects. <laughs> Did you even watch Sharknado? Come on. <laughs> A little insert. I actually thought it looked cool. I mean, what do I know? But I, I didn't even realize it was a bad effect, Arnie. You're, you're stunning me with calling it. It's not as bad as you're saying it is, or I would have noticed it. I can tell you that. So here's where I'm torn. I recommended the first Wolverine movie. Yeah. And exactly. so if I don't recommend this, by an arbitrary scale, I'm saying this is worse. And what I can say is... This movie is more about character. This movie has story. This movie is better acted and has more heart than X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, I completely dissed X-Men Origins Wolverine. I called out all of its flaws, but said it had enough turn off your brain, sit back and watch the action porn that I could enjoy it. This one's the exact opposite. And so I'm really stuck hanging on a needle. And I'll agree with what you said, Stuart. This has not been a very good summer for movies. I'm left where I was with Iron Man 3, where it's like, you know, it has some good things, but it also has some really, really shitty things. It has some really low points. It has some really bad character moments that are completely almost ruinous. I'm going to eke down on the side of recommend. It's a weak recommend, though. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's worth watching for some of the action and for some of the character, but I think it's really unsatisfying. I think Viper was a toxin that permeated this film. I think Mangold just was an ineffectual director. I think that goes down. I've, again, I've seen just about all of his films, and... I think this is right in line with several of the others. It's just not very good, but it's good enough that it's worth seeing. Uh, I, barely. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it was a character that you didn't have an affection for, if it hadn't had a long history. If this was the first movie, if he was a misfit or a standalone hero, if you would have given that pass. I probably wouldn't have, and I'll give you a little bit more on that though it's not just that i have affection for the character which i do it's also that hugh jackman slides into this role like i slide into a pair of comfy shoes and so having him if this was the first film for the x-man bishop i probably wouldn't have the same affection but you also wouldn't have an actor who's so effortless in the role here i do think that Jackman's performance, his humor. I laugh out loud during several moments. He brings levity even to serious scenes. I think Jackman carries this film and is the only thing that keeps it afloat during some of its really darker moments. But I think some of the writing is just trite and bad. I think that the performances are pretty solid, though. It's a weak recommend. No, so wrong. Dick God. No, this is actually one of my favorites. I think it's better than Last Stand. I think it's probably better than the first X-Men movie. It's definitely better than Origins. It doesn't hold a candle to First Class or X2 in my mind, but no, it's in the upper regions of the X franchise. I actually can't believe you're this ambivalent about it. I, there's just so much right about its tone. I guess maybe what benefits for me is that they really toned down some of the silly 
comic booky CGI stuff of it. It really does feel closer in realm to a samurai movie, and that really works for me. I think that's it. I wish we were doing a samurai retrospective now. I do too, because maybe there'd be characters there that actually had clear motivations, unlike Mariko. I'm not going to defend Mariko, but, you know, if we're not going to do Samurai, let's at least do a superhero that really did deserve a sequel. Kick-Ass! Are we going to finally dust him out of the Misfits and give him his own little bracket? Sorry, much like Red 2 is still a hitman, Kick-Ass 2 is still a Misfit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yes, we will be back next week continuing not doing retrospectives, but appending retrospectives with Kick-Ass 2. But hey, if you're in the mood for a series, we're starting one on Friday. That's right. It's a donation time again. And no, we're not uh, pulling a prank on you. It really has been one whole month since our spring summer donation. And we're starting on fall. I I guess it's uh, time to go back to school. It is time to go back to school. I was standing in line behind some people spending hundreds on paper and highlighters today. But I do want to say we're not trying to bilk anybody. We're not trying to do more donation series or anything like that. It's a matter of timing. The World's End, the third of the Blood and Ice Cream movies is coming out in just a couple of weeks. We really wanted to cover it. It was supposed to come out in October, so we put it on our calendar. It moved and so what we did was just move our donation series up and so we're still doing $10 or more and you get five Simon Pegg and Nick Frost movies, the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy, plus because we like to do five movies, we're throwing on there Paul, which is almost the same, just not directed by Edgar Wright, and then Attack the Block, which is, well, a fifth movie. Nick Frost shows up in it. I think somebody that worked on the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy directed it. I mean, it's got some ties, but yeah, we needed a fifth movie, there it is. So there you go, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End, Paul, attack the block, $10. What's going to be for the gold level, Arnie? We all go a little crazy sometimes. So for $25, we'll do six movies instead of three and do all the Psycho films. That's right. All the Psycho films means not only do you get the four that star Anthony Perkins, Psychos 1, 2, 3, and 4, but you get a TV movie called Bates Motel, and that has nothing to do with the current series that's currently on A&E. It's something from the 80s. Look it up. We're going to do it. It's got Lori Petty in a chicken outfit. Can't wait to discuss that. I saw it way back in the day. You're going to freak out when you see it. And, uh, of course, who could forget the notorious, maybe the most reviled remake of all time, Psycho Gus Van Zant. We'll uh, give it a new day in court. See if it's as bad as its reputation has. Psycho 1998 will close it out for six movies, $25, plus all of the Simon Pegg, Nick Frost films in that 25 as well. And like all of our donation series, these are only available for a limited time. We're going to run this donation series through October because Psycho movies, what better for October Halloween? And as of October 31st, they will go in the vault with all of the others. Alien, Jaws, Chucky. So if you want them, head to nowplayingpodcast.com starting Friday. Check the banner at the top for all the details and the release schedule. And hear us review all of these extra movies. I'm excited. It's our first time reviewing comedies. 
Yeah, it'll be a whole different thing. I mean, this is going to be a great fun one. I can't wait to talk about it. Crack a ice cream cone and join us. So we will be back next week with Kick-Ass 2. So until then, sayonara. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage, and your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you wouldn't like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as the Avengers films, Spider-Man movies, and many more, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, and Tron. We also have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a ticking millionaire. And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? Do you think I have needs? Do you think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to hit the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still alive? The Wolverine, starring Hugh Jackman and a whole bunch of people whose names are going <laughs> to f*** the hell up. We could just skip it, honestly. If you really want to know, go look it up. It's Hugh, Hugh Part 6.
it almost seems too casual dropping the atom bomb on Fukushima here. Or not Nagasaki, sorry, looking at someone's yeah, name. Yeah, Fukushima is, yeah. is this, <laughs> I'm looking at the actress's name. Decades disaster, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> um, no freaking clue. Gotta remember PG-13 podcast. Good scene. I like that Eureka gets something to do here with protecting him from other guy whose name I can't remember. Shinjin. Uh, from Sinjin. Yeah. So Eureka delivered the death bro. She, bro? Death bro. Yeah. <laughs> if it was Ryan Reynolds and Green Lantern like this, I don't know that I would have given it. But because... Although you did recommend that, that movie. That's somehow. a different... Yeah. All right, let me change that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. I wish you could change that. <laughs> Three not recommends for Green Lantern. I mean, change my comparison here, not change my recommend there. I oh. stand by that. <laughs> oh, God. You're breaking if my this, heart. Struggling with this one, but he's standing by that. <laughs> oh. That was also a very this weak is This is the anti-Blade 2. <laughs> <laughs> if 